Hello, and you're very welcome to The Week That Really Was with John McGurk and Sarah Ryan. And if you've read the description of this episode, then you know who our special guest is, and we'll come to him in a second. But before I do, as ever, I'm going to turn to my good friend and colleague, Sarah, and ask you how you are and how your week was. I'm fine. My week is good. I have a seven-year-old birthday today in my house, so we're been, we've been I've been plagued with questions about how many hours until today for the last few weeks. So, um, yeah, that's been kind of consuming the time. And I'm very excited about the rugby this week again. So, um, yeah. Yes, Yes, my wife is also desperately excited about the rugby. She's the rugby fan in our house now. And we have actually have a baptism on Saturday. My my little nephew's being baptized. And, uh, you know, the the nephew's mother may be listening to this podcast. So I, I probably shouldn't say that my wife is constantly asking if it will be over in time for the rugby. But I think it probably uh, will be. It will, yeah. It will. Um, anyway, Ronan Mullen, you're very welcome to the show. Thank you, John. Hello, John. Hello, Sarah. Uh, best of luck with the baptism and the wetting of the baby's head and <laughs> hopefully the celebration of a, of a match win as well. Well, I've no job, Ronan, which is great. I, 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 I was the godfather for the child's sister, so I'm, I'm off the hook on this one. So all I have to go right. to do is go and stand there and eat some food. The important thing is not to drop the baby, I suppose. That is it. That is it. Anyway. Um, After that, everything's great. It is. We talk about the events of the week on this podcast. And the one event that kind of struck me this week as, as having some significance that kind of ties in with sort of the stuff that you're doing, Ronan, is a story in the Irish Times this morning about a lecturer, um, Colette Colfer is her name, down in the Southeast Technical University, which comprises, for those of you who don't know that we have it, a Southeast Technical University. Uh, the former ITs of Waterford and Carlow are now a, a university. But they've just introduced a new policy which basically says that it, it is against the law to misgender somebody. And Colette Colfer says she's not going to abide by that policy. Um, and she has an article in the Irish Times today where she's seeking clarity on that. So I'm going to ask you, first of all, do you think she? Do you think the, the, the university is correct that it is against the law and a legal matter that you, you are not permitted ever to misgender somebody? No, I don't think they're correct. And I think there's a couple of very interesting things about this whole case. Colette Colfer, I'm familiar with her her work and her line of argument from social media. And I find that she's always extremely measured. And reading about what has happened in the Irish Times today, it is clear to me that she's actually taking a very decent and measured approach to this issue. A bit like what happened, if I'm not mistaken, with Jordan Peterson. Her objection is not to being courteous to people. As she says herself, she would err on the side, and these are my words, not her, but she would err on the side of using um, a person's preferred pronouns should they wish as a matter of of kindness and so on. And I think we'd all uh, uh, adopt that approach uh, in the vast majority of situations. But her objection is to the claim uh, or to the proposal that it be some kind of a legally backed requirement uh, that she should do this because because what that brings into play is to the attempt to legally compel something to people to say something that they don't in fact believe is true and she has rightly said that she will refuse to comply with this new gender identity policy which as i said you know it doesn't ask or re- recommend but requires um, and describes the refusal to use students or staff members' preferred pronouns as an example of, quote, unlawful discrimination or har- harassment. So the question is, is it? Well, I've had an issue for some time with the fact that uh, government departments have been um, training people around um, the accommodation of transgender persons or people who are transitioning in the workplace. And again, I stress the vast majority of people are decent. They would want to be kind and courteous to recognize that people having gender dysphoria is a very difficult situation. People need sympathy and support, but not to the point where others are expected to deny reality. So when you have government departments, and this has been happening, uh, doing these kind of training events for staff and bringing in controversial organisations like TENI, the Transgender Equality Network of Ireland, who have 
you know, issues around the way they do their work, issues around indeed whether they audit the money that they've been given, they, the, their expenditure, and given that they have been receiving grant aid from the state, and that they clearly have skin in the game and couldn't be described as being objective. I had a problem with the fact that various government departments, uh, in terms of their own management of civil service practice, were bringing in an organization like Tenai. So I actually sought uh, and did an examination with the assistance of the, the research services here in the Oireachtas to see, well, you know, is it, um, you know, what is the legal uh, status um, of of the word uh, gender? You know, is and how is gender defined in Irish legislation? And this is relevant because if they're claiming, as they appear to be in the Southeast Technological University, that there's some kind of legal backing uh, for the requirement that you don't engage uh, in unlawful uh, discrimination, as they call it, or harassment by 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 not using a person's preferred pronouns. Well, it must be on the grounds of some legislation, um, or, or anti-discrimination, or legislation in relation to harassment. But that simply doesn't exist because in all the legislation up to now, gender has been defined as meaning male or female, including since the Gender Recognition Act of 2015, if you switch your gender, then it's your preferred gender, but it's still male or female, you know? Um, So it doesn't go any further than that. So if, for example, your preferred uh, gender pronouns are Xi, if you're the Chinese leader, for example, um, or, you know, there's nothing in law that says that you you know, that it's discrimination to refuse to use that uh, preferred pronoun. And that's part of the reason why uh, the legislation on hate speech, which I know we're going to come after after a while, is so controversial. One of the many reasons it's so controversial, because that legislation imports a new definition of gender. But what you're having already is without there being any apparent legal basis. And that was clear from the from the research that I had done. There's no legal basis to require um, people to use other people's uh, preferred pronouns. I stress again, as a matter of courtesy, we might all want to do it. We don't want to be compelled to do it. But here's where the basis does appear to be coming from. And I think we need to turn our attention at some point to the Athena Swan um, uh, requirements, where you have universities signing up to secure Athena Swan Charter Accreditation. Now, I always thought that that was about uh, gender equality as between men and women in the workplace. And that sounded to me like that's all good stuff. And it's great if they're getting accreditation, if they've good practices there in terms of, you know, securing you know, equal rights for for women and men in terms of access to top posts in universities and so on. But I, mea culpa, I hadn't realised it goes much further. That charter, which was launched in Ireland in 2015 with a remit to address gender equality, um, has expanded to include uh, consideration of the experience of trans staff and students. I'm quoting uh, the Irish Times here. And you have the higher education policy penis one certifications for universities to get state research funding. So in other words, if you're looking for state research funding as a university, you have to get uh, up the ladder with Athena Swan, and it appears that Athena Swan principles include the affirmation of gender. Um, so what you then have is the government having signed up to this, now pushing it. So no legislative basis for requiring it, but government policy um in conjunction with this Athena Swan certification for universities to push gender uh, recognition or gender identity recognition specifically. Um, The other thing that I think is is worth noting here, so there's no legal basis for requiring this, and yet here this university telling its staff it must use preferred pronouns as a matter of requirement. Secondly, despite there being no legal basis, there's this buy-in to Athena Swan certification and it's being pushed under that heading, but not without legislative basis. Um, And thirdly, then you have the strange reaction of Minister uh, Roderick O'Gorman today, and again, fair play to uh, grips Ben Scallon for putting the question. And, you know, Roderick... uh, 
played two cards. He played the courtesy card, which we'd, we'd all agree with, uh, but that's not the point. Colette Colfer has said that as a matter of courtesy, she's not necessarily uh, interested in, you know, she said she had no personal objection to using anyone's preferred pronoun or name. Her main issue, as I said, being that it's compulsory. So it was a red herring that Roderick said, oh, as a matter of courtesy, um, one should do that. Then when asked about, you know, well, is it is 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 there a legal requirement? Is this is this basically? He said, "Oh, that's hypothetical because this matter will come before uh, the Workplace uh, Relations Commission." Well, it won't because there is no case in being. Nobody has at this point uh, refused. There has been no complaint, and. You know, so this attempt to pretend, you know, that normal line that you hear used, oh, we can't comment on cases that are before the courts or before some kind of tribunal, that doesn't arise. He was quite legitimately being asked, is there a legal basis for this um, uh, uh, this being made a requirement by the university? And he dodged that. Mm -hmm. And the other final point I'd say on it, he dodged it by saying, oh, this is going to come before the Workplace Relations Commission. Why did he say that? Well, it is interesting that even though, as I said, the legislation um, isn't there to require this these these new versions of gender identity uh, to be, if you like, honored in speech. Um, it is the case that lower tribunals where there have been um workplace disputes, such as the the um, workplace relations um commission, uh, have tended to rule on gender discrimination as though it was um, uh, discrimination on grounds of gender identity. But those are not binding precedent because those are lower tribunals. So uh, what Roderick maybe should have said is we, we'll have to wait and see uh, whether this comes to the high court um, to see whether the government has any firm ground or any emanations of the state, such as universities, have any firm ground on which to make it a requirement. Because the legislation certainly isn't there, and it would be the height of judicial activism if in the absence of such legislation, uh, the High Court was to rule in any future case, oh, well, gender means gender identity. And therefore, if a person says they're Kiwi gender or whatever and have a, a pronoun to go with that, you have to use it or else you're being unlaw acting unlawfully. It, it would be terrible if the High Court were to rule, were to just kind of legislate in that way. But they haven't because there hasn't been a case before the High Court. And wherever this issue has arisen, it's only in lower tribunals. So the minister was dodging the issue completely by suggesting, oh, talking about it being a matter of courtesy, that may be very well be true in the vast majority of situations. Nobody disagrees with that. But suggesting that it was going to come before the Workplace Relations Commission, it may or may not. Nobody has complained against a collective. Calfer. So now is the time for him to give clarity. You'd expect government ministers, when asked about what the law currently is and what the law currently re requires, to give an honest and clear answer to that. He, I'm not saying he wasn't honest, but he certainly chose to dodge that question. And he conveniently then referred to the lower tribunal, the Workplace Relations Commission, because there might be some comfort from the way they've been ruling on disputes, but that simply isn't binding law. Um, and if it, if it if it does come to a dispute uh, where the workplace relations commission finds against a person such as Colette Colfer, if there is a complaint about not using pronouns, it would be very interesting to see if that goes to the to the courts to see whether they would, as I said, reinvent the law in this area. Well, I have to take issue. You've been a senator for long enough now not to be, not to expect government ministers to give clarity, as you said. <laughs> well, absolutely. Sarah, I want to turn yeah. to you um, because one of the things that Colette Colfer said, I mean, I, I, I don't, I think Ronan is entirely right in what he said in terms of the, the legals and the politics of it. One of the really interesting things Colette Colfer said about uh, why she was doing this was she said that she, she knew loads of other staff in higher education institutions that are nervous and too afraid to raise an objection or express concerns. Basically saying there's loads of people who share her concerns, but they're just too frightened to speak up. I mean, this is a theme we come back to in this podcast a lot. I think she's correct in that. But like, where, how did we get to a point where this kind of, uh, Ronan's being diplomatic, but this kind of mad stuff can be implemented um, over the heads of most sensible people or a lot of sensible people? Well, a couple of things. I mean, I think that the threat of, of cancellation is looms large for a lot of people, particularly if they work 
I'd imagine in that kind of educational field because you know the jobs are limited you do a long graft to get to any kind of level within universities and the universities are notoriously pro all of this kind of agenda so I imagine that the terror of speaking out against something like this is even more heightened than anywhere else but Ronan mentioned, you know, Jordan Peterson, which I think is really, really apt because it's almost a play by play play of the exact same thing. And if you watch, like I followed Jordan Peterson, Peterson's career from quite early on. And if you watch even interviews that are a good few years old now, he was every single interview he did was opened with this thing of. So you're refusing to use the pronouns of students who come into your classroom and want to be called this. You're refusing. And he said. No, I'm saying that I shouldn't be I shouldn't be legally obliged to you. But he had to make that argument every single time because it's it's a ploy that the and and it's being done here as well, which is pretending that you know it's just a matter of courtesy and courtesy. It's nothing to do with courtesy. I would imagine that most people will be the majority of people will be courteous to someone who's specifically asked to be called a certain thing. The issue is about whether you're legally mandated to to do so. And it's a red herring, as Ronan said, it's used time and time again, and it's being used here. And it should be challenged right from the beginning, because otherwise it gets legs. And it makes people who think that this should be questioned look like they want to be cruel or, or, or mean to people who are struggling with their gender identity. It's nothing of the sort. It's about mandating speech. It's about making it illegal to use the wrong pronoun, which is absurd. And your point is well made that probably the reason why so few people do it, and, and as I said, particularly in education, is because they're afraid, because the, this movement has more power than the people who speak out against it. It's just the reality of the Ireland we're living in at the moment, unfortunately. Yeah, two things occur to me on this. The first is that obviously universities are particularly bad because of the power of students on this. And we've seen this in the UK with the case of Kathleen Stock, who was, I think, booted out of Bristol University for something very similar because she wouldn't bend the knee um, to, to this kind of thing. That's the first thing I'd say. Second thing is, though, you're both being very courteous. Uh, I, mean, I, I, I go along with you both to a point in relation to this business of if somebody wants me to use their pronouns, I will. Yes, certainly. If somebody, I mean, I, I was an officer of the Union of Students in Ireland years ago and, and worked on transgender issues. And definitely, if somebody has transitioned and now wants to live as a woman or now wants to live as a man, that's absolutely fine. But somebody comes to me and says, I'm demigender. <laughs> I mean, I'm sorry. No, no. You, you, and, and, and wants me to respect that. I mean, I might not say anything. But yeah, I, I, that's just something you found on the internet that didn't exist twenty years ago. I mean, there, there's a there's a there's contagion happening here, particularly amongst young people, where you know this idea of you know twenty three, forty seven. Regina Doherty said there were nine. I think it's multiplied since that. Different genders. I mean, oh, I read I, out many more than nine during the hate speech bill at second stage. It's 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 expanding rapidly. It is. The number is expanding rapidly all the time. And I, I'm sorry. It, it, a lot of this is is the kind of social contagion, fashionability, call it what you want. But somebody comes to me and says, I want to be, and I'm using demigender as an example, mm-hmm. um, or one of these other things. I, I'm not going to take you seriously. And, and and the law shouldn't compel me to take you seriously. And that's not the same as not being courteous to somebody who says, I now want to live my life as a woman because that's where I feel most comfortable. I mean, you do you. Yeah. But don't make me try and believe that you're a member of, uh, the, uh, you've changed your biological sex because you haven't. I mean, and you see, yeah. And part of the issue, John and, and Sarah, is as well that, you see, when people kind of play the courtesy card, well, that's that's step one. Um, but you see, if if as a matter of courtesy, um, I decide to use your preferred pronouns, that doesn't concede any principle that, you know, I can still regard you as having gender dysphoria, which is a condition. You deserve sympathy. We think of it in terms of a disability. Um, you know, I'd hope that there would be support of whatever kind is necessary available to you. Um, whereas if, if, on the other hand, you turn it into a right that's a kind of a requires me then to change my version of reality because it's your right. That's somehow a statement that the correct and true position is that you are actually this offense, put it bluntly, this fantasy gender. And, and that's, that's the difference. And of course, you know, we can put up with an awful lot where adults are involved because adults can freely, freely choose um, to, to engage in, in, um, 
you know, to take cross-sex hormones and eventually to have surgeries and indeed to avail of the 2015 Gender Recognition Act to have a, a preferred gender that's different from their biological sex gender. Um, but the problem is what goes on in schools and what goes on around the confusion of children and the frankly, early sexualization of children that goes in tandem with this. Because, and I heard a story recently only um, in the west of Ireland, it was a school, and would you believe it was a it was a Catholic school? So, you know, uh, Minister Roderick O'Gorman and, and, and the various other ministers who are, are gung-ho on all of this uh, would, would presumably be delighted, uh, where a teacher um, asked the, um, the, the kids in the class to say what their preferred gender was, you know? And I think one young one kid then finally broke the, the the spell of nonsense by saying well he was he was identifying as a pirate of the caribbean or something and just the class broke up laughing you know so again you know if there was a kid in that class with a gender dysphoria they deserve acceptance of themselves as a person equal in dignity a child of god the same as you and me absolute you know, intolerance of any kind of bullying or humiliation, the same way as there would be for any kind of bullying or humiliation on any ground. But it doesn't actually mean that you endorse. In fact, the last thing you should do is endorse uh, this this gender dysphoria that the child had. And that was the thing that I was saying in the Shannon today. There is gender dysphoria. There is There are children with gender dysphoria, but not transgender children, you know. Um, I, I'll accept that an adult who has surgeries or, or who avails of the um, of the 2015 legislation to have a different preferred gender can fairly describe themselves as a transgender person. But if we talk about about transgender and children instead of children with gender dysphoria, then we are acting against the best interests of those children. Because as we know, many children it, with this gender dysphoria, and it is a problem, and it is a problem coming up in schools, and as far as I can see, schools are dealing with it generally very sensitively and keeping the ideology out of it in, 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 in most cases. That's certainly the aim of the, the Catholic Primary School Managers Association, saying keep the ideology out of this, you know, mm-hmm. Don't put the person up against the wall and challenge them. Don't, on the other hand, engage in affirmation. You know, you know, roll with the person and just you know keep it keep it nice and country, and and that's a, a decent way to to deal with the problem. But even yeah. on the other hand, and um, they're talking about transgender children. As I said, we know that most children would desist from this and would go on not to have gender dysphoria. What we also know, um, and people like Helen Joyce ha- have written brilliantly about this, and anybody that hasn't come across Helen Joyce's book, um, Trans, Where Ideology Meets Reality, would be well advised to have a look at it. Uh, it's a great book. Uh, and she makes the point that that um, because the one thing that puberty blockers do is, is they interrupt the ability uh, of the child uh, to desist, in other words, to to get back to normal, for want of a better phrase. In other words, they endorse and they entrench the dysphoria. You know, so it is it is real damage to a child to endorse this confusion that they have. Uh, what they need is love and respect and assistance uh, to move beyond it. Yeah, I, I just the, the the last thing on this before we move on to the hate speech bill, and I'll let you come in in a second, Sarah, to, to wrap it up. But I was I was I was slightly up the country from where I am in Tipperary this week and I ran into somebody who's a fan of this podcast in most respects. But they had a go at us actually, Sarah, for talking about this issue on the grounds that it isn't real. It's just a few, um, I won't use the word they used, but a few kind of extreme people on the internet having this argument amongst themselves and in the real Ireland, it's not touching anybody. And and to that I, I, person, if you're listening, I would say just listen to what Ronan has has talked us through here because this is happening in our universities, in our schools. Ronan, I think you, uh, like me, in your college days, might have been involved in a bit of college debating. And I remember four or five years mm-hmm. ago going back to the Hist in Trinity where I was a, a debater years ago and being shocked that all the students standing up to begin their speeches on whatever the motion was were introducing themselves with their preferred pronouns and thinking this was oh, just gosh. a kind of a kind of kooky thing that was happening in our university. Yeah. But it's it's yeah. an it's I think it's it's kind of an infection that's spreading through society. And I really yeah. wonder, Sarah, like what's it going to take to to wake most people up to this? Because every time you talk to and I think you've had this experience as well, every time you talk to a normie in inverted commas, a normal person who isn't 
sort of engaged in politics every day that we where we are, and you bring this stuff up, they think it's absolute nonsense, but also that it's not really happening. Those that that kind of combination. Has that been your? Experience I think. I think that used to be my experience until it really started to leak more into schools in a, in, in, a, in a much more obvious way. And I think that there is a contagion going on. And I I think that that children with, um, you know, uh, gender dysphoria are are appearing in in the in the lives of more and more people there there there's someone in their kids class or whatever so i think it's becoming much more of a real issue for them um i also think that you know the the idea that children are being taught i mean ronan was talking it and he's absolutely right that somebody a child who's experiencing gender dysphoria should be never be bullied and and, and is owed all of the you know compassion and all of the the good treatment that anybody else is but i also think that all children are owed, you know, not to be exposed to complicated conversations about things that we as adults still don't fully understand. We haven't played out this conversation ourselves fully. So the idea that seven and eight year olds would be asked by their teacher or spoken to or asked by their teacher to refer to their teacher as a certain pronoun is absurd in the extreme. There's countless things of of uh, of in terms of sexuality, in terms of loads of things that we don't expose children under a certain age to, and the the seeming need to expose children to this for some for some reason, and and the real the real pressure that's put on that as an issue is, is I think starting to make people wake up and think why are you so consumed with teaching this kind of thing to children? This, as I said, lots of things we wouldn't teach seven and eight and nine-year-olds too. We wouldn't go into a seven and eight and nine-year-olds class and talk to them all about how, you know, one of their parents might get cancer and die because we wouldn't want to expose them to... Sarah, I think we temporarily lost your audio. Um, ...children until we have a full understanding of what they mean. Yeah, Sarah, your audio just cut out there for a little bit, but I think... John, I think, I, I, I think we... Could, can I can I interject there if Sarah... If, if I'm not interrupting Sarah... Sure. Yeah. Yeah, no, yeah, just yeah. just to say, yeah, just to that point where people say, oh, well, you know, you're you're obsessing about a niche issue or a culture war. I mean, to quote Billy Joel, we didn't start the fire. You know, what we have going <laughs> yeah. on here is a fairly surreptitious advancing of a social agenda uh, on various fronts without a legal basis, generally, very often without consultation or if there is consultation, it's ignored and by quango. So you have, for example, the National Council of Curriculum an assessment in their uh, proposed syllable for the social personal health education at both at primary and also at secondary level, originally pushing uh, the idea that gender was a spectrum and they ignored the initial consultation which showed that many people were against that and then when there was further pushback by parents the minister basically toned it down and took out that idea um just to take one example and another example you know you, you have professor donald o'shea uh, you know, a highly credible endocrinologist who is involved with the National Gender Service, who is an expert, who has been involved with adults uh, who are transgender and who has been warning that there's a real danger here of young people and 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 and, 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 and an explosion and a, and a, and a, and a co-presenting issue in a lot of cases of autism and saying we just need to slow it down. We mustn't go straight into gender uh, affirmation and he's worried now that the HSE lead uh, to be the to be appointed to this um, area is not even going to be required to be a clinician, and he has been saying, and he is worried that there, that there's going to be an activist um, appointed. In other words, somebody who believes that if if a child or a person says they're 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 they're, they're, they're trans, you just go with it, you believe them, and you you you, and as we saw happened in the case of children being sent to the Tavistock in England, children being exposed to puberty. Black then cross-sex hormones um, with with some ma major problems for health, life-changing, costing them their fertility, uh, affecting their ability in the future to have a, an ordinary uh, sex life, and then of course with with the um, with the um, with with the surgeries. Um, just the horrors that go with that and in the many, many health problems to which they've been exposed. And we've seen that there have been people who have regretted their transitioning and, not, and, and, and suing and so on. So 
Like, isn't it remarkable that you have a HSE which is not on the side of the welfare of the nation's children? You know, so to those who say you're worried about niche culture war issues, I'm, so, I'm, so, I'm sorry. The evidence is there that the people who run our country are acting against the best interests of people, especially uh, of children. And, um, and, and we need more and more people courteously, but insistently and determinedly asking hard questions of the Michal Martins, the Leo Varadkars, the Norma Foley's um, and the Roderick O'Gormans about what the hell is going on. Why has ideology got hold um, of the cabinet and of the civil service backing it up, but that is supposed to be acting in the public interest? So it, it's, a, it's, a, it's a real problem. And there's a related issue then as well where in addition to not having a legal basis, you have the attempt to compel speech in this area. This is what this pronoun issue is about. It's about compelling people to speak in a particular way so that people ha- end up having a different understanding uh, of reality. Well, that's And if cool. I might just... Yeah, go on. I was going to say, you, 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 I, I pride myself on my transitions from topic to topic, Ronan. You've actually, you've actually, you've actually brought us on because we are. I'm conscious of time. We do want to get on to talking about the hate speech bill, uh, which we'll do in, uh, 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 we'll do right now. But just to say on the trans stuff, we could talk about this all night. There's so much more. We could have a conversation about how Tenny got so much influence. Um, we could talk about the challenges facing parents. It's a whole it's a whole night's conversation. We've talked about it for just about half an hour, which is longer than I thought we would, and we're not even halfway through it. And without the aid of drink, you know, so we're a credit to the country. We are indeed. But anyway, um, I'm going to ask you a, a very simple, straightforward question, Ronan, here, and uh, just keep your answer as short as you can. Have you killed the hate speech bill single-handedly and with the help of some presenters, <laughs> or, is, or is it coming back? Oh, it's coming back. It's coming to the... Well, sorry, it, it is due to come back at committee stage. We've only had the second stage debate on it, which, as you know, is the stage of legislation um, where where every person gets to speak once and the minister launches the bill and then responds. So we, we, it has passed the doll, but it, it has come through its second stage in the Shannon before the summer. And the question is whether and when it will come um, uh, to committee stage. I think the fact that people like Sharon Keoghan, Michael McDool, uh, myself and others um, have been highly critical of the bill and have said that we will be bringing forward extensive amendments. I hope and think that that has given the government some kind of pause. I think the fact that Senator Lisa Chambers, the the, Fianna Fáil, the leader of the Shannon the, in, and the, uh, of Fianna Fáil, has said that there are issues here. Um, th- that may be causing a rethink. Um, the the fact that the general election isn't a million miles away might be a factor. There's a question, though, they do have the numbers to push through anything they want in the Senate. The question is, would they dare to use the guillotine to, 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 to foreshorten and close down a, a debate on a piece of legislation that is so controversial at this point? And I don't know the answer to that. It's a... Uh... It's an interesting one because we've obviously discussed it quite at length on, on, on this show. And one of the reasons we want to have you on is because I think your speeches in the Shannon were so influential in sort of raising awareness of the contents of the bill and the potential implications of it. And I think it's really interesting, Sarah, that people like Lisa Chambers have, uh, I mean, quite, I mean, I use the word flipped on this, um, especially because Lisa Chambers is, is, I think we could agree, a down the line social liberal who's broadly supportive of pretty much anything the government wants most of the time. But she shifted on this. Um, and you and I, I think are both of the mind that the bill isn't going to go anywhere, but um, should we rethink that? Well, I mean, there's many key issues that I disagree with Lisa on, but I have to say, I think she's, I think the reason why she shifted on this because she's smart and she knows it's wrong and that it has huge implications and that it's fundamentally there's a huge, huge issue with this. Um, so I think that that's why she's flipped Um but I would have, I would have definitely been of the mind that it was dead in the water, um, a while ago. Um, now I don't know. Um, obviously Ronan knows more than we do about this. But uh, like I would say that I think Lisa's quite influential uh, within Fianna Fáil, not just because she's leader of the Shannon, but also because she's quite like highly regarded, um, as somebody who's who's you know got a good head on her shoulders. So I, you know, who, who's to say what will happen down the line? But I, I. I did think it was dead in the water, but I think we were maybe being a bit too, it was wishful thinking on our part, John. 
Yeah, well, we'll see. But Ronan, I, it possibly I, it has to do with the internal relationships with the Green Party and and the the two main parties. You know, I mean, I I, I like quote, I like quote. I mean, there are many decent Green people, and there's aspects of Green Party policy that I would respect. But I often think of the Yates quote: "The best lack all conviction, and the worst are full of passionate intensity." What you see here is, I think, a lot of ideology coming strongly, in particular from the Green Party, with quite a few supporters in Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael, and a whole lot of pragmatists that are going to go along with it in order to stay in government. And you have one or two then in the main, in the two big parties who will, you know, just be intellectually honest and say, there's a problem here. And I would give Lisa Chambers credit for that. I think she is a, she'd see herself as a social liberal, but she is also an intelligent person. I think there are people who recognise that for a healthy democracy, you need to be careful about how you restrict uh, people's speech. There are limits to what we can say, obviously, in every situation. But, you know, I think a certain amount of people get that. But but um, we'll just have to see. And of course, a related issue then is how these proposed referenda are going to go, because they also tie in with the definition of gender that the government has been trying to smuggle in. And the question is, they may be asking themselves, how much can the public take and how long do we want to be going on with this stuff when perhaps we'd like to be, you know, give, having a giveaway budget and currying favour with the electorate and trying to undo some of the, the current support enjoyed by the Shinners. Yeah, I, I would say on this that I mean I I would think I mean Sarah says Lisa Chambers is a smart woman. I don't dispute that, um, and 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 you give her credit. But I, I wonder when some of these people in government role are going to take the next step and draw. I mean, not in a conspiratorial way, not not drawing lines on a whiteboard, connecting two things at opposite ends, but looking at the fairly obvious pattern that we've discussed even on this podcast about the constant push coming from a particular sector in society to regulate speech and ideas. Uh, and to compel people to speak in a particular way and think in a particular way, of which the hate speech bill is, I think, the most obvious extension. That that's that that's the that's the bit where you've got a fist underneath a male glove saying, if you don't do it, you go to prison, um, and if you don't do it, we can come in and search your house and find if you've anything hateful on your devices. That it it all tends to be part of a, a larger sort of. I mean, RTE, for example, the state broadcaster, you cannot take a sceptical line on RTE about climate policy. That is that is permitted yeah. by their editorial policy. That's just another example. But right across the board, it seems to me, yeah. in the democracy, we have one section of society trying to put an end to debate on a whole range of issues. The line on climate change, for example, is there is no longer any debate. Debate is mm. no longer permitted. And yeah. the, I'm not asking you to comment on that or, or take a position on it either way. I don't even have a particular position on it myself. But I, I do know pattern is there constantly that you know, the debate must be shut off. And I, I wonder when people in the centre, in inverted commas, are going to start waking up to that um, and, and, yeah. and taking a position on it. Am I wrong well, there? Do you think? Do you think? No, I'm I right? think you're correct. There's been an Overton window and, and many different Overton windows for a long time. But what is sayable? What is discussable? I mean, we saw it on things like abortion a long time before we saw it on this issue. I think it's fair to say. You know, there was yes. a whole area of discourse around. For example, I mean, just just to take one example, you go back to the 2018 referendum to 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 remove the Eighth Amendment. I remember like, it well. You know, <laughs> yeah, I, the, the worst thing that happened in a long, long time. But, you know, was there any openness to debating whether, in fact, the Eighth Amendment had saved lives? You know, when you could easily take the figures of Irish women having abortions in Britain, add the number of estimated importation of pills, you still had a very low abortion rate compared with um, other countries, especially Britain uh, and places like Scotland with similar population. So was there ever, you know, did, was there ever any tolerated debate about whether the Eighth Amendment, you know, they were very good at having people on who said, oh, we were exporting our problems, but did they ever any tolerate or ask the questions themselves whether this legislation, if you just compare the numbers, was saving lives and whether that would change and whether that would lead to an increase in abortions. They just closed out that 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 very relevant question almost completely. And needless to say, we're now at a situation where the abortion rates have gone up considerably and it's running at 8,000 a year and rising. So, you know, that 
inability to interrogate all or unwillingness maybe rather than inability to interrogate uh, all aspects of of important questions you know that's been a feature uh, of mainstream media uh, for a long time and that's one reason why for all the faults of, of digital media and social media and alternative media and there are many faults as we all know and there are problems with it um but it has this liberating effect where people can actually call out some of the untruths and that's what your your, your good work on gripped is 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 really about you know, exploring issues without fear or favor. I think of uh, shows like Trigonometry, and you know that I watch sometimes on YouTube. You're just getting quality analysis that's based on the you know the truth as people believe it to be on the basis of the facts as they have them. That you simply, in a way, that you simply don't get on mainstream media the vast vast majority of, of times. Yeah, well, we could talk about the media at, at, at length. I want to ask you. I mean, do you think? Because sometimes when people, and this is, I'm going to throw you something in your face now that will have been thrown in your face a hundred times. They get thrown in my face as well. People who, when you say this to them, reasonable liberal people will say, oh, well, it's no worse now than it was, you know, when Archbishop McQuaid was going around whacking politicians with his crows here. Hmm. I'm not sure. I mean, firstly, if that's true, it makes me wonder whether this is just something that's in the Irish psyche and that that, that the Catholic Church has been blamed entirely unfairly for it. But I wonder, is it true at all? Because I, I grew up in the in the late 80s, early 90s, when the church still had a modicum of cultural power. And I don't remember anything like... I liberals were able to speak their mind quite openly, as I recall it, but they seem to have convinced themselves that, no, that wasn't the case at all. Absolutely. I mean, I was just reading something about um, Gemma Hussey today. She was one of the former um, uh, Fine Gael ministers and senator in the late 70s and 80s, you know, having a major, you know, cut off the bishops and describing them in fairly dismissive terms, you know, I think around the time of you know, contraception legislation. So, you know, and it doesn't matter whether she was right or wrong. There was there was a freedom and, and, the, and, 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 and you know, people had their views, even if they weren't, well, they probably had a sense that they were the emerging majority on that issue. I suppose if we're fair, I was born in 1970. If you go back to, you know, to the, to the 50s, of course, there was overreach on occasions um, uh, by, by certain uh, church figures. But I think it was always the case that there was a respect for ideas and that people, you know, they might have lost the, the liberals might have been unhappy because they lost the argument. But, you know, it was pretty rare that they were closed down, you know, perhaps, you know, you'll have had controversial situations like the Eileen Flynn case where, you know, a person's particular lifestyle gave rise to an issue because they were a teacher in a Catholic school. You can argue over and back whether that's the same thing that we're talking about. I don't think it is because what we're talking about here is did the media uh, facilitate um debate where different sides got heard. Uh, I have never heard any serious claim that the media um, crushed on any kind of ongoing basis uh, one whole point of view. And I've often made the point, if you take the 1983 referendum going back to the Eighth Amendment, you know, the third that were on the losing side in that referendum were never denied their place at the microphone in the studios after that. In fact, they continued to get a disproportionate airtime, you know, and uh, I doubt if the late Alice Glenn ever had an uncontested debate on RTE, <laughs> whereas you you and I know that now that the shoe is on the other foot and the third that wanted to protect human life completely were on the losing side in the vote, you're expected to go under a rock. That issue is regarded as being settled and any discussion or criticism of the Eighth Amendment, any discussion or criticism, for example, of the so-called independent review of the legislation, which was anything but independent, any issues about uh, the lack of uh, a requirement of precautionary pain relief for unborn children where late-term abortions are taking place, any issue about the lack of diversity in our maternity hospitals where there isn't a pro-life option uh, permitted, you know, any issue about the lack of funding uh, given uh, or the lack of an agenda even to promote alternatives to abortion, all of that is considered to be outside of the Overton window for discussion because we are now all expected to believe that abortion is some kind of a right and that it is a good thing and that you can't ever talk about it being regrettable anymore. I mean, that is massive censorship on, on, on a life and death issue. And I don't think there was ever anything like that in Ireland. 
But it's not even just on the audio. You're, you're entirely correct in everything you say. But I'll ask Sarah a question because I can't answer this question because I'm the editor of Gripped Media, right? And obviously I have a stake in it. But I will say this. When we founded Gripped, I was very, very clear that we would follow all the rules of journalism, including giving credit to other outlets for stories, et cetera, et cetera, and, and, and reporting the news as it was, regardless of who reported it first. But Sarah, this week we had um, my colleague Ben got Pascal Donoghue to admit that the government only funds NGOs that agree with it and, in his words, uh, support the programme for government. And then we had Roderick O'Gorman today basically saying he wouldn't comment on the law uh, as it relates to the Colette Colfer thing, even though he's the minister responsible for the particular law. And, I mean, I know, I know in the case of the Pascal Donoghue story and I, know, I, I suspect in the case of the Roderick O'Gorman story, no one else in the media will pick those things up or report on them, even though all the other journalists were at both, both events I mean, it just seems to be there's a blackout on this stuff. Is it just because it's from Gripped and they don't like us? Do you think, or is it, or or is it, or is it just not cool to report stories that your friends might like? I I think it's probably a combination of both, but I think that ultimately, yeah, they don't like Gripped, and I mean, they basically we've seen roll their eyes when Ben even asks the question at this point. This such is the level of contempt. But no, I think that. You know, there's a, a, a cozy relationship between the media and the government and they are not interested in reporting on things that, you know, don't fit with the agenda of the day or the agenda of this government in general. And that's what happens. Like, I mean, the story about uh, like the idea that a government minister would 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 suggest that funding would be, you know, questionable for for certain groups that they did or didn't agree with is I mean, it's it's the stuff of. George Orwell books, you know what I mean? And it's, nobody says anything because, you know, I don't even know why anymore. I, 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 I'm sad to say it doesn't even surprise me. I'm much too young to feel this old in keeping with the, you know, theme of <laughs> song lyrics. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's a vicious circle, isn't it? You know, the NGOs push for certain kinds of policies. The government agrees, puts it into the programme for government, and then the government funds those NGOs so they can go out then and uh, enjoy the parade or join the marches demanding on the government to take action, you know? Um, and look, at one level you can say, well, the government won the election. Uh, they have been entrusted uh, with the public purse. Uh, and is, is it not right then that they should be able to use money in order to promote the activities of NGOs which promote the policies that they support. And the answer is, it's not necessarily right, any more than it wasn't right. And the McKenna judgment found all those years ago that the government wasn't at liberty, for example, to use public money in advancing one side or another of a referendum proposal. You know, so this idea that the government would have kind of the absolute right to use the public purse in whatever way it wants to push whatever ideas... Uh, it, it becomes a really dangerous thing the more the government tries to close down debate. And of course, there will be a backlash because people resent it when they are not allowed to express their ideas. And I'm not talking about their ideas that would incite violence or that involve recommending or in any way acting or criminally or even in a way that would uh, attack people's civil rights. I'm talking about people's basic ideas, however controversial, on controversial issues, whether it's migration, whether it's gender. But, you know, even even in recent days, you had Minister Catherine Martin coming out and applauding and supporting the fact that the that the Boxing Association are going to review their policy on you know who may use uh, their venue. Um, this relating, of course, to the uh, meeting or the conference that was organised by a religious organisation around aspects of the issues we've been discussing, um, sex education and related issues in schools. But again, think about that. The government presumably grant aiding uh, the Boxing Association and is it the IBBA and using I, them I, the heavy I, I, hand. IABA. IABA, exactly. The heavy hand then is saying, well, if we're giving you money to lose your event, you can't then give a platform uh, to people who disagree with aspects of public policy. And why not? I mean, at the end of the day, you know, the, it is the law that we should be concerned about here. If people are uh, gathering 
um, to recommend breaking the law, the criminal or the civil law. Well, that's one thing. And I would certainly say, yeah, a government funded organisation should not give them a premises for that. But if, on the other hand, people want to gather in order to advocate a change in the law or not even the law, as we've seen, the government doesn't even have legal backing for a lot of what it's doing. Advocate a change in government policy to warn about the dangers of it. That is the essence of democracy, that people would be able to gather. And you don't have to like them and they don't all have to be polite. And you or I might be embarrassed to be sitting beside somebody who would get up and shoot their mouth off and you say, oh, my God, you're doing your cause more harm than good. But it's still better to allow that in a democracy than to close it down. Uh, well, look, I, I, you're singing my tune and I was going to make the, the point about the IA, IABA being funded by Catherine Martin's own department as well, because I thought that was very sinister what she did. Yeah. I, I know, a very unhealthy development and it's it's the government full on showing that they are on board with, with, with cancel culture. Could, could I mention another thing, and it's not necessarily a government thing, but it's a thing that I've noticed because a lot of what we're, what we're talking about here is about compelled speech. You know, the, the pronouns, the requirement that you use a pronoun because the speech that you use reflects the way you see reality and it reflects the way reality then is presented to other people. That's what's going on here. Now, I've noticed I'm on this uh, committee on assisted dying Mm-hmm. And there are moments, and I hope people don't regard it of insensitive me uh, as insensitive me uh, uh, of me to say there are moments when I do feel like I'm losing the will to live at that at that at that committee. But it is a, a serious issue. But I do regret that we're, we're we're discussing it at all because I think it has major implications for our society if we were to uh, legalize, you know, or, or have the state, you know, regarding the death of some people, the deliberately you know, chosen death of some people as, as some kind of a acceptable, you know, some lives are of more valuable value to the state than the other. But the point I wanted to make was there have been occasions and I, I really find it disappointing when instead of, you know, addressing the argument of the witnesses, um, you have people saying, oh, this language now is distasteful or this language, there's, you know, there's an unpleasant style. So, for example, uh, my colleague, Gino Kenny, who I get on with very well personally, but who's obviously pushing uh, for a change in the law in the assisted suicide area, you know, regarding it as distasteful that somebody might describe um, euthanasia or assisted suicide as intentional killing. And I'm saying, hang on a minute. That's 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 a re- and in fact did challenge a legal expert who used that phrase at one point. And I'm sorry, that's the way that person understands what's at stake and what it means. Yet another person then says, "Oh, killing isn't the correct word at all because this would involve consent." Like murder or manslaughter are the terms you use when there's no consent to the ending of a person's life. Killing can be by consent or otherwise. But what's going on here? They're trying to sanitize the change in the law that they're promoting by trying to, as a matter of causing offence or not to require the other side uh, to change their language. In, in in effect, what they're in doing is they're engaging in moral judgment of people who disagree with them. Instead of uh, addressing the argument, they're engaging in a moral judgment and trying to claim that you're acting in a morally wrong or distasteful way by using language that illustrates the starkness of what you think is 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 at stake. Uh, there was a Fianna Fáil TD the other night, John Lahart, another guy I like. I think he's very good, sometimes very thoughtful. But you had a clinical psychiatrist from America who was absolutely top of his game, very concerned about the introduction of euthanasia and how it would affect the fight against suicide. You know, um, had his facts and figures, but he was blunt. You know, and he talked about people. You know, you know, wanting the the hamburger, but. Not not being willing to you to kill the cow, and you know he used kind of earthy phrases to get his point across. And the TD then went in and attacked him uh, on the grounds of style and said, "Oh, it wasn't very academic." So you have this attempt to marginalise people who actually know their stuff, who are making a reasoned argument, but by referencing style or your language is distasteful. It's an it's an attempt to imprison your opponent in the language that you'd prefer to use because it's language that sanitises uh, what's going on. I'm referring to the Gino. Kenny example there more in particular you know I don't know if and, I'm making sense at this stage you, well, well, the yeah, evening job. I, I was thinking I was thinking just on that point um the about the, the one of the things that happens is that how the media always immediately adopt the language of the left so a couple of years ago somebody in America took a poll on abortion and decided that it was more palatable to the public if you started referring to it as abortion care oh, and yeah. now and now every media outlet in the country 
uh, writing about abortion only talks about abortion care and every politician. I mean, it's just that the, it's like somebody flips a switch. Yeah, any, that's right. Anyway, um, we are getting late in the evening. And before we go, I wanted to ask you, um, and maybe uh, I'm sure Sarah has a question for you too, which I'll allow her to ask in a second if she has one. But I want to ask you, because your colleague uh, Sharon Kogan was on this podcast, one of the early episodes, just, over, just under a year ago with myself and David Quinn. And she was talking about what it's like being in the Shannon holding opposite views to the majority. And she she kind of said, and I'm, I'm paraphrasing her because it was a long time ago, but I'm not misquoting her. She said it sometimes felt like being under siege, that the, that the atmosphere in there can be quite toxic. And you've obviously been a very prominent dissident on all these matters for a long number of times. And your your regular election wins in the NUI panel cause no end of teeth grinding and gnashing from people who are convinced that every time they're going to get you out and then they don't. Um do you find that there's that 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 what she said is accurate, or 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 do you, you know, obviously it's accurate to her experience, but yeah, do, do you think that that's gotten worse over the last couple of decades, I guess, since you've been involved in politics, and is it a more hostile place than it once was? Well, as you suggest, it, it is a subjective thing now, and and uh, I'd like to say, you know, I I think I'm a lot happier person than some of your listeners might think, listening to kind of the the, the vehemence of the points I've been making this evening. And I have to say, I I probably am what you know a relatively happy warrior, you know, and I enjoy the cut and thrust of debate, and I enjoy the encounter with people. Um, of course, there are, I I but you know, so overall, I would say no. I I, I actually find Leinster House a very pleasant environment. Um, I get on very well with with with, with colleagues, uh, even when some of them have disappointed me greatly, particularly maybe when they were originally making sense and then, you know, political advantage beckoned and they went the other way completely. And it was impossible not to conclude that there was opportunism as opposed to a change in thinking, you know, at, at stake. So those are always disappointing moments. But look, there's good and bad in us all. And we're all capable of being a disappointment in one way or another. So I won't go on with that. But I will say that... There, I still have to admit, though, that there is a change in, in culture. When I was elected first in 07, you just had the impression that people might have thought you were nuts, but, they, you know, they kind of was still, you kind of got on. Uh, there might have been one or two that were, were, were more difficult. There are more people now in there, like there are certain people that literally will not say hello to you if you meet them in the corridor, you know, a, a few TDs um, and, and, and some of their activists kind of look at you in a funny kind of way and, you know, almost appear embarrassed if you say hello to them in a cheerful way or something like that. And there's definitely more of that in recent years. The bit of it in Sinn Féin, a bit of it in the hard left in particular. You get the impression that for them, that if they accept that you're kind of a human being, they're worried that it might blunt their sword a little bit or they might lose their ardour for their ideology, you know? Mm-hmm. And look, I have to give it to them. If they're if they're if they're pursuing their political advantage, then maybe that 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 makes sense in a strictly logical kind kind of way speaking for myself it's not the way i want to live you know because i know there's there's good and bad in me and there's good and bad in in everybody else um and i will say this and people give out about um politicians going on junkets and i and i i i have been careful i think not to abuse that situation in my political career but there are occasions when you travel and and you do travel in the national interest and you try and you know use your time well and you know speak up at the meeting you're going abroad for i did find over the years that if you did go abroad with with other politicians that it could have a kind of a humanizing effect because when you're away with people and you know you you have an evening out then after the work is done or whatever it can change the the dynamic a little bit you know mm-hmm. and and I've been grateful for that on the occasions that it's happened because it it meant then that when you came home you were able to talk to them in a new kind of way and perhaps even talk about important things to do with policy without you know an immediate sense of hostility or closedness but uh, overall I have to say that there is. There is a bit of a difference in the environment politically around here than there was 10 or 15 years ago. I have to admit that I do notice that. That's my sense as well. Sarah, I'm going to give the last word slash question to on to you because we're, we're, we're hitting up on time, sadly. So um, you crushed my dreams when you said that the uh, the hate speech bill is probably not dead in the water and uh, that... Um, It'll be back. Um, so I well, my well I'm not sure. I just don't know. <laughs> Sorry, Sarah. So, it, so but, don't lose your sleep tonight over it. it, it okay. They, they may. <laughs> but I think, like you know, the work that you did uh, um, was hugely instrumental in 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 having it where it is right now. 
Um, but I also think that a lot of people, you know, really put pressure on and that's what, you know, had it kicked a touch for, for want of a better expression. So in your opinion, if it does reappear, reemerge, you know, is there anything that, 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 that people who might listen to this podcast did that could help or, you know, does emailing their TDs and, and, and getting involved in that way work? Like, did it, you know, is that advisable if it, if it reemerges? It certainly is, Sarah, and it's a great question. I think the more of that that goes on um, and the more people, I always say, you know, know, make it hot for them, but I don't mean in a hostile way. I just mean by being insistent, you know, play the politicians. That's what they're paid for and say, listen, this is not in the public interest and there are downsides to this. I mean, we haven't actually discussed the content of the hate speech uh, legislation that much, but but the, the hate speech aspect of the legislation is the particular problem as opposed to the hate crime. And it comes down to the fact that hate isn't defined. And therefore, what people say, um, if it's robust but reasonable, could be portrayed as hatred. And on the basis of perception that it is incitement to hatred, people might be put through the legal mill. And even if they're not successfully prosecuted in the end, the harassment and the hassle of it, the process becomes the punishment. And when you factor in that among the protected characteristics that could give rise to a charge of incitement to, uh, to hatred or speech that Insights hatred is a radical new definition of gender. Uh, we're exactly in the middle of the culture wars, which is exactly the area where people might try and chase you down and put pressure on the guardy to initiate a process against you. And as I said, that's what's so uh, damaging to our democracy. And I think that point needs to be made uh, to politicians over and over and over again by concerned citizens. And also in the media, wherever people have uh, access to letters pages, uh, you know, to phone-in programs, stuff. In the end, the, the, the worst that could come out of this is, well, the two things. It's the danger to children around all of this um, in terms of how uh, gender ideology is pushed. And it is the danger to our democracy generally where um, you have an increasing um, culture of censorship that is not what we expect uh, to be living in in this part of the world. Yeah. Well, that's a good place to end it. Um, uh, thank you, Ronan, so much for, for coming on the show. It's yes, been an absolute you. pleasure uh, to have you. I'm sorry it took so long for us to get you on. We tried to come on. Pleasure was mine anytime. Um, just, I, I, I think for folks who are listening, I just want to apologize. I think the audio might have been a little bit wonky at one or two points in the middle of this podcast. Normally I'd edit that out, but it was an important conversation. Uh, and I, I don't think I'm going to do that. So I'm going to leave it all in. Um, so people can hear it. So just apologies if there were those one or two moments. That's just the nature of what we do. Um, we will be back next week, Sarah and myself, um, to discuss the budget. Uh, so something slightly and entire something completely different, um, where we'll all be a little bit richer or a lot poorer, depending on how the minister is feeling on a given day. But until then, from Sarah and myself and from Ronan, thanks so much for listening. And that was the week that really was.